Uh, we're continuing our, our Lenten sermon series titled uh, Words from the Cross. I, I always find it very compelling to remember that the season of Lent uh, is intended to parallel the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness when he was tempted by all of the temptations common to us human beings, appetite, ambition, and approval. And he emerged from that, uh, says Luke's gospel, not just having been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, but he emerged in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's something about wrestling with these temptations we confront in our, in our life with God that's very important. So this, this is the season when we do that. In this particular sermon series, we're investing the six weeks of Lent in the last six hours of Jesus' life. Those were the six hours he spent on the cross, right at the end of his life. During that time on the cross, he spoke what are traditionally known as the seven last words, which really are statements that they weren't just single words, but he, he made seven statements from the cross as he hung there dying on our behalf. And just by the nature of, of crucifixion, as gruesome as it is, it, it makes it incredibly difficult for a person to speak while enduring that. So it seems apparent that Jesus really wanted to get these words out. A, a couple of them were actually prayers where he was praying. He could easily uh, have prayed silently to himself, but it seems he wanted us to hear him praying in his dying. So these words are very important. Today we look at the second word from the cross uh, from Luke's gospel. Let's listen to that scripture now. The word of the Lord from Luke 23. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So stop for a moment and, and think about the scene, would you? Just really consider it, think about what's going on in this picture because it's extraordinary. You know, as followers of Jesus, we believe some stuff about Jesus, specifically that he was the son of God, that he was God made human, fully God, fully human, God incarnate on the earth, come to seek and to save lost people. Remember, that's what Jesus said uh, as to why he came. Here it is. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he was coming to do. God came to earth in the person of Jesus to find us, help us, and save us. And here he is, nailed to a cross, hanging between two hardened criminals. Because that's what they were, hardened criminals. The old uh, kind of translation, the thief on the cross doesn't quite capture the original meaning of the, the Greek word used there. These guys weren't shoplifters. 
They were hardened criminals. The word, uh, the same word is used in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one? Remember, remember the victim in that story, the poor guy on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho who got waylaid and left, left for dead? Says the story, he was attacked by robbers. There's the word. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. See, these weren't, these weren't just men who were robbers in the sense they were willing to steal. These were people of violence willing to kill so as to steal. And Jesus is hanging right in between the two of them. I mean, the, the extraordinary irony of it, right? Jesus, the one who cares the most about people of anyone in the world, dying between two men who seem to care the least. Fleming Rutledge, in her reflections on the last words, captures it well. Good Friday summons us to think deeply about the profoundly strange, incongruous, indeed unacceptable nature of a crucified God nailed up between two bandits for the scorn of the passerby. Would you in a million years have ever dreamed of having such an objectionable fact at the heart of your faith? No such image of God has ever been imagined in all the history of religion. Which, as a side note, is a tremendously powerful argument for the truth and historical reality of the Christian faith. Our human religious imagination would, would never arrive at this point. Our Savior hanging between two criminals in public shame. And yet, all of it was in God's larger purpose. Look, look at this from Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born. So clearly speaking of Jesus. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, there, there it is. God came to earth in the person of Jesus to find us, to help us, and, and to save us. And at the end of the day, it's not just the hardened criminals like the two guys he's hanging in between. The transgressors, the lawbreakers, that's us. Spiritually. And even as he was pouring out his life unto death to bear the sin of the very transgressors he came to seek and to save. As he was doing that, he was numbered, counted as one of them. This is stunning, really. Jesus between these two criminals. I mean, this, this wasn't a new thing for him, kind of hanging out with sinners wasn't new for him, right? He intentionally befriended the last, the least, and the lost. Very clear. Whether they had be, become marginalized from society by way of their own decisions in life, like these criminals, or whether they had become marginalized by society's assumptions about them. Jesus befriended that crew, right? And when they, when they hung out with Jesus, they noticed something. He never made them feel lesser. 
or like nobodies. Never. He didn't look down on them. He didn't overlook them like much of the rest of society did. He didn't hold the same assumptions about them. When they were with him, they felt strangely hopeful. I'm probably dating myself here, but I really like Dave Matthews. Great guitar player. Yeah, some of you are with me. Some of you have no idea. Um, but he, he wrote this, what I think is a really cool song, just called A Christmas Song. It's really a song about Jesus more than just Christmas by itself. And, and its theology isn't perfect. You shouldn't base your faith on a Dave Matthews song. <laughs> but he nails the part about the people with whom Jesus hung out. Listen to the verses. So the story goes, so I'm told, the people he knew were less than golden-hearted, gamblers and robbers, drinkers and jokers, all soul-searchers like you and me, like you and me. Rumors insisted he soon would be for his deviations taken into custody by the authorities less informed than he, drinkers and jokers, all soul searchers, searching for love, love, love. See, Jesus died as he lived, reaching out to the last and the least and the lost, seeking to find us, help us, and save us. And as the scripture we read today shows people responded to him in different ways. Uh, look at a couple of the verses again. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly for what we are getting, uh, for we are getting what our des deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Well, one criminal hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. I mean, you can feel the resentment here, can't you? I mean, the, the, the anger. He's angry. You can tell. It's just spilled over. Probably spilled over into everything in, in his life. Some commentators said maybe this guy had a zealot's outlook. That there were four big sects in Judaism of that day. Zealots were one of them. They were the people who thought the Messiah would come and rally a, a military coup against Rome and they would take over by force. And then that, that Messiah would be the king of the new thing that was established. That's kind of what was going on at Palm Sunday, by the way, with that welcome. Hosanna, save us. They were welcoming Jesus as a zealot leader, completely misunderstanding what he was. They had, you know, ex expectations of the Messiah that turned out to be false because Jesus was much, much more than that. But if, if this guy happened to be a zealot, then we'd hear in his insults the bitter letdown of his earthly politics. Or maybe he thought Jesus was really that military leader, but now here they were. So clearly this guy was a liar and a fraud because he's not going to lead anything from here. And he wasn't going to let Jesus forget it. That's one kind of person, right? Focused entirely on self, either unwilling or unable to acknowledge their need for help from beyond themselves. And let's remember that that's the thing. Our willingness to acknowledge our need for help from beyond ourselves, to unbuckle the tool belt, throw it away and say, 
I just can't do it. But see, the other criminal was experiencing some kind of change, it seems. He saw things more clearly, uh, uh, assessed their situation more correctly, and, and said to the other criminal, come on, don't you fear God? We're dying here. And you and I both know what we did, but this guy hasn't done a thing. See, maybe the experiences of that day had been percolating in his heart because he was certainly led in that long procession around the city with Jesus when they, all three of them had to carry the cross member of, the, of their cross upon which they would be hung. He had watched Jesus struggle. He watched him fall. He watched as the soldiers made Simon of Cyrene pick up that cross member and carry it for him. This criminal was watching. He watched the way Jesus interacted with other people. He was observing what was going on. And maybe, maybe the last straw was that prayer. Right after he'd been nailed to the cross, remember Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I kind of like to think that it was in that moment that this hardened man of violence realized he didn't want his life anymore. He wanted a different life. He wanted a life like Jesus. He wanted to be able to pray like Jesus did in a moment like that and mean it from his heart and for the first time in his life he saw that kind of life is possible. Now almost unknowingly he had come to possess the single prerequisite for salvation required by Jesus. Spiritual bankruptcy or that moment when you unbuckle the religious tool belt and throw it away realizing You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't figure it out. You can't read enough books. You can't attend enough church services or do enough religious stuff. You just can't do it. See, meaning this guy came to understand that he could not help himself spiritually and that he needed help from outside himself maybe the very first time in his entire life that that dawned on him. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you know you've got nothing to offer God, you're ready for a real interaction with God. So in that moment, no longer caring what anybody thought, this criminal turned to Jesus. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember how painful it was to speak while being crucified. It took extreme effort to utter those words. But this guy was going to get him out there. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. The, the first church I was a part of, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. I came to Christ as a senior in college. And the first church I was a part of was up in Traverse City, Michigan, Faith Reformed Church. That's the congregation that nurtured me as a young Christian, discipled me, gave me leadership opportunities, and, and then sent me to seminary. Uh, interesting sidebar for me that uh, I felt so encouraged by that church because uh, that congregation entirely funded my whole seminary career in two special offerings, $30,000 in two special. So thank you, Faith Reformed Church, for paying for that when I couldn't. Thank you, Lord. Uh, hopefully we can do the same for those whom God is calling up into vocational ministry as well, which, by the way, might be some of you young people sitting with us today since we're a whole church family because we're celebrating communion. Please pray about that and consider that. God calls us. One of the primary ministries that we had at that church up in Traverse City was a, a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. It's, it, it's kind of out of vogue these days. It, it was an, a way of equipping Christians to share their faith and talk to others about what Jesus has done for us. And in that course, we learned a presentation of the gospel, how to share about what Jesus has done. And I get that there's problems with that. A canned thing is a canned thing, right? But it helped me a ton because the thing I struggled with was not verbalizing my faith enough. So this was very helpful for me. In, in that uh, presentation, it started with two diagnostic questions we might ask someone. Question number one, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Question two, suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you in to heaven? What would you say? Now, I, I get it, more problems, right? The, the questions seem to telegraph that salvation is just about making it into heaven when we die. The Bible says salvation is much bigger than it. I, I get that. So there's a lot to talk about here. And all of that said, there's some real good to these questions. Because the first one wonders about our assurance of salvation, of, of our assurance of our relationship with Christ. And the second wonders about our understanding of the basis of salvation. So let's, let's take the assurance piece first. According to scripture, we can know that we have eternal life. I don't know if you know that. I know that we all have different levels of engagement with the Bible. Uh, but look at this from the letter of 1 John. The Apostle John wrote this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. A big qualifier there. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, not to you who believe in uh, your own efforts or attempts to be religiously exceptional. This is, this is for those who trust Christ with their life, with everything. You may know that you have eternal life. It's like the Apostle John could have written, I want you to know that you can know. I want you to know that you can know. So as you contemplate your death to this life, you, you don't have to, to wonder or wring your hands. You know, there, there is a, a position 
that's available to us in this life based nothing on what we've done for ourselves, based entirely on what Jesus has done for us on the cross that gives us tremendous assurance and certainty. That, that we can know this, not because we've done it right, but because God so loved the world that he gave his son. And, and I'm in Christ when, when I trust Jesus. So we, we can know. And, and with that assurance, I believe Jesus wanted that guy on the cross to have that assurance because remember what he said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The, the truly I tell you part is the Greek word that we uh, kind of transliterate as amen. I mean, the thing we say when we're done praying. Do you know what it really means? It's a statement, kind of a solemn statement that guarantees assurance. It's like saying, when you say, amen, you're saying, that, that is definitely true, without a doubt. The colloquial version would be, you can take it to the bank. Right? Amen. So Jesus said to this guy, you can take this to the bank. You're going to be with me today in a place you can't imagine. And with that assurance, Jesus also gave the guy the when, who, and where of eternal life after death to this life for the person who looks to Jesus. When? Today. I take this to mean that followers of Jesus can be certain that when they die, they don't land in a holding tank somewhere or some kind of purgatory, but that we immediately enter into Christ's kingdom. There's a little more to talk about, but not much that mediates that. Immediately after death to this life. That's the when of eternal life. Who? You will be with me, Jesus said. This is way more important than any of our speculating about what, what heaven's going to be like, what the new earth will be like. The most important part is that we'll be with Jesus. That's the who. Before making his covenant with Abram, God said to Abram this, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God's presence is our reward. And Jesus said we'll get to be with him. And the where. In paradise, this, this word was a nod to a Persian word describing the garden of a king. One commentator wrote this. When a person was honored in ancient Persia, they were given the privilege of enjoying the king's garden with the king. We're with the king in the king's place. It's perfectly tended. All right, put together, Jesus is saying that when we die in Christ, we will, one, enter his kingdom immediately, two, be with him forever, and three, be in a physical place which is beautiful and carefully tended where there's peace and all manner of things are well. See, Jesus wanted the criminal to have that assurance, and I believe he wants his followers today to have that assurance too. It's question number one. Question number two, let's go back to those questions just for a moment. Suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why, why should I let you in? What would you say? This question wonders about the basis of our salvation. Another pastor I very much respect called Alistair Begg, pastors a church in the Cleveland area, in a sermon that was largely about how we might answer question number two, imagined the scene of this criminal on the cross arriving in heaven. And in, in the sermon that uh, 
uh, Alistair Begg preached, he said, you know, when I get to heaven, I want to find this guy. And I want to talk to him and just, and just ask, how did this work out for you? Because, you know, you, you didn't go to a single Bible study in your entire life. You weren't baptized. You knew, you knew nothing about anything spiritual. Uh, and, and you made it. <laughs> like, you, you made it in. And he, he wondered, he kind of shared this illustration, he wondered what it was like for this guy when he actually arrived in heaven because maybe an angel greeted him in the same way and said, well, hey, welcome, what, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I don't know. And the angel says, well, well what do you mean you don't know? And the guy said, I, I don't know because I just don't know. The angel kind of wrings his hands and, what? well, you have to know to kind of be here, so I don't understand how you could not know. Well, well, I don't know because I just don't know, says the guy. So the angel says, okay, let me, let me get my supervisor. So he brings in the supervisor angel who says, oh, okay, I understand we have a little misunderstanding here. Let's just ask a few questions to clarify things. Let's, let's start with this one. Are, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> Never heard of it. The guy says, okay, let, let's, let, let's skip then directly to the doctrine of Scripture. Blank stare. So eventually, in, in frustration, the, the supervisor angel says to the guy, look, you can't answer any of these questions. On, on what basis are you here? To which the guy said, look, I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Brilliant. Friends, that is the only answer to question number two. Because the man on the middle cross said we could come. It's all grace. It's all grace. You know, Scripture says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's all grace. If any of us start to answer question number two using the first person, you know, when God asks, why should I let you into heaven? If we say, well, because I've gone to church, because I've done this, or because I've done the other thing, because I've because I have faith, because I believe, because I, I did all the right stuff, because I was very religious, because we've gone wrong from the very beginning. Because it's not about me. The only proper answer to that question is in the third person, because he, because Jesus died in my place on the cross, because he bore my sins in his body on the tree, because he paid the price for me, because he covered the debt that I could never pay, because he invited me. One of my very favorite hymns that we sing uh, often around here, not often enough in my opinion, is the hymn before the throne of God above. I love this stanza. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. 
And one, one of the most potent pieces of this second word that Jesus spoke from the cross has to do with the threshold of faith required for salvation. Right, Christians, so much ink has been spilled on this and just, I just the conversation. I, I was uh, making a pastoral call actually with our friend Dave Bast one time and we were reflecting on something in the car ride on the way home and he made the comment, and gladly there are no adverbs to qualify faith in the Bible. You don't need to have this certain kind of faith or authentic or real or... You just need faith. Just trust. In fact, the Bible says it can be as small as a mustard seed. If you don't know a mustard seed, you would struggle to see it on my pinky finger. It's teeny. We don't have to have all these religious actions to support the faith by which we come to God. The criminal on the cross did not do a thing to earn the grace that he received. The only thing he did was acknowledge his need and ask Jesus for help. I would encourage all of us to do that today, to acknowledge our need and ask Jesus for help. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, for the, the depth of grace that you demonstrated for us, even as you hung dying on the cross, we are so very thankful. And at the same time, we're so overwhelmed. God, help us if we haven't already come to the end of ourselves and simply admit to you that we've, we've got nothing left. That we, we're at the end of our rope. We can't do it. We can't build it. We can't fix it. We can't heal ourselves spiritually. And help us like that criminal on the cross did. Simply turn to you and ask for you to, to remember us, to save us. Thank you that you came to earth to seek and to save us lost people. Help us to not say no to you. In your name, Lord, we pray.